0: we're talking about decreasing the buffer in order to get closer and closer to real time. But by decreasing that buffer, you're introducing the risk of rebuffers. And rebuffers are probably the most annoying thing
1: when you're watching a video. There is always a sacrifice of stability with latency. Even as like we reliably start decreasing latency, All
2: throughout the chain, from end to end, from broadcaster out to delivery, every issue you can have along the way gets magnified when your margin for error is down to milliseconds instead of potentially seconds. I'm Matt, the organizer of the SF Video Technology Meetup and the DeMux Conference. And I'm Steve, creator of VideoJS,
1: the open source video player. And I'm Phil, streaming specialist at Mux in London and organizer of the London Video Technology Meetup. And you're listening to Demuxed, a
2: podcast for and by engineers working with video. Demuxed is brought to you by Heavybit,
0: a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com.
1: We're always looking for topics, so if you have any suggestions or just want to tell us how wrong we are, you can find us on Twitter at Demuxed. Hey
2: everybody, welcome to the Demuxed podcast. Uh, this is our first attempt at recording during quarantine. So all of us are at our respective home, social distancing. Today we wanted to try something new. We, uh, You might have noticed that we didn't introduce a guest. That's because we didn't have one today. We had been talking a lot about this low latency stuff going on with Apple's announcements, and it's kind of a really hot topic right now with everybody trying to start new work from home, distributed apps and things. So low latency, real-time video, has all kind of come to the forefront again, and that's dovetailed with Apple's recent announcements, which we'll dig into in a second. But we were like, we can just talk about this. So we're going to do a two-parter. Phil and Steve in particular have spent a lot of time thinking about this as a topic and writing about it. You might have read a blog post on on the Mux blog or seen seen Steve talk about it in the last year or so. So we figured we'd just dig in. This first episode is going to be more along the history of low-latency, real-time video, what that ecosystem looks like, make some definitions, and then talk about kind of Apple's announcements up to this point and where we are. So that being said, we're we're gonna uh, kick this off. So Steve, since you've kind of done a few of these talks, actually have Phil, you've de- both defined this. Why don't y'all define low latency?
0: So so yeah, I'm just kind of like I'm hesitant to jump too deep into it just because it seems like you know maybe people don't know exactly what we're talking about so kind of stepping stepping back to like i think like maybe the applications that are using low latency might help kind of frame the conversation here mm. and i kind of see the main use case for this concept of low latency live streaming being interactive live streaming At scale specifically. So let me let me talk about that in specifics here. So you have this idea of like real time chat, right? So Zoom, Google Hangouts, like that's that's already like real-time interactive audio and video. You can like talk back and forth to each other in real time. There's not like weird latency that feels like you're on a you know a long distance phone call and you have to like pause and wait for people. Like that's like that's what we mean by latency, right? Is that like the time between something happens. In real life, to when it shows up on the other person's screen.
1: Yeah. And in video, we tend to call that glass to glass latency the glass of a camera lens to the glass of a device. Yeah. So you have this idea of like
0: real time chat. And then you have on the other side, you have like, say, like broadcast live streaming. So think like the Super Bowl, like you're streaming to millions of people typically the Super Bowl will already have baked into it at least I heard that it had like as much as 30 seconds of latency already baked into it so that they could respond to issues that happen in the stream quickly or even just like weird things that happen like a newscaster like, flub something or cusses or something and and they have to go back and like bleep it out. Like it's already latency built in. So you're like you're not really talking about low latency in that type of scenario, the like the big live streaming event scenarios. We're talking about is kind of landing right in between and, and we're thinking about applications like like Twitch, where you're you're watching your favorite gamer live stream their their video game. And you're chatting alongside, and the gamer is like maybe responding to your chat in real time. Or games like uh, HQ Trivia, you know, the phone app where you can, they'll have a live host answering questions or, or giving you questions to answer. And you want that like responsiveness to feel interactive. So it's not real time, it's not real time chat. It's somewhere in between where you have a large audience, not all interacting with each other, just interacting with a host. But you have that like real-time feedback happening.
1: Yeah. What I think is interesting there is really the the differentiation between this this interactivity that is a few seconds and this this interactivity that's that's immediate, this this real-time communication as it's called. And you know, that that really feeds into the technologies that people think about and select when they're trying to solve these business cases. Because you don't need a real-time technology for five seconds of latency, but you you do need a real-time technology for you know sub-second latency. That tends to be where people start to think about drawing a line around you know sub-second is uh, infeasible with more traditional technology approaches, and is why we have things like WebRTC on the internet, which we'll get onto in in depth, I'm sure, in a minute, but. This is tends to be where the line is drawn somewhere between you know five hundred milliseconds and a second is a, a real time experience versus kind of this low or ultra low latency concept.
2: Yeah, the the way I've started describing this to people that are like programmers and familiar with the concepts of the internet, <laughs> um, the huge difference is how much of your normal like web application stack you can use for one versus the other, and how much of a difference that makes for both cost who you can hire to help work on it like all those kinds of things like HLS and these streaming protocols over HTTP they all use your normal CDN they're all your same like CDN contracts you scale it in the same way that you would scale or a very similar way that you would scale like a normal application under heavy load you know you have all the same caching parameters like all that kind of stuff maps really well to a normal high traffic static website right to some extent, mm-hmm. cheaper. Yeah, and you, you use all your same contracts and your relationships. Uh-huh.
0: Commodity CDN hardware that's you know been tuned over the last 20 years to deliver these these little packets of data compared to like these real-time, I don't know what you call it like stateful connections, persistent connections mm-hmm. between an end user and, and a server that has to be
2: kept up, you know that gets really expensive at scale. Right. Having to maintain a connection to every single viewer. That that part alone is expensive. And then like that that's kind of like where I've been explaining a lot of the difference here is like, yes, low latency is feasible. You're just also probably going to pay out the butt for it, which as we mentioned earlier, I think HQ learned pretty quickly. Just on the on HQ note,
0: I think we were doing some uh, some math early on. So HQ, we were like snooping their their traffic when they were early on streaming, and they were doing some stuff that you would expect a startup to do, just kind of using you know the quickest technology to get them to what they were trying to achieve. And uh, originally, we saw them using RTMP. To stream video like directly to every one of the users, and we did the math on that, and it was you know with hundreds of thousands of viewers, uh, RTMP connections to each. Thinking about just just the transcoding and the, the like, flash servers or Wowza servers involved It was probably around like thirty thousand a show, without even getting into like the network delivery and and things like that. So probably not the most efficient. Probably not the most accessible
1: to other people trying to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is is drawing these lines around where these these spectrums start and end people has been traditionally very, very woolly from a business perspective, right? Um, there's this this commonly thought of number that that broadcast television, particularly in America, is is somewhere in the region of, of a fifteen second delay. Uh, glass to glass, which obviously varies massively, right? As as Steve said, you know, the Super Bowl had a lot of of built-in latency, designer outcome performance reasons. And then there's this very woolly area of how close can you get to kind of that 15 second broadcast latency with the uh, the traditional technologies that Matt mentioned, right? The the HLS the chunk delivery technologies. And then anything lower than that, yeah, kind of becomes this this super Wooly area where we need some new technology that looks a bit like real time, but also looks a bit like these traditional HTTP based technologies before you get down to that true real time conversational component. Yeah. I think to us, like low latency would be anything above a second, but below 15 seconds, say. And then there's a scale there of ultra low latency being kind of that first one to, you know, Five seconds and then low latency being kind of five up to that kind of broadcast latency level. Would you agree with that, Steve? You're saying ultra low sub four seconds? Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, pretty much four to five somewhere in that region. Okay, yeah.
0: And like real time being sub one second. Yeah. Or really like real time is really like sub 300 milliseconds essentially, right?
1: Yeah, it should be. A lot of people are advertise and, you know, claim real-time that is about a second, you know, as, as we're experiencing now, I don't think everyone would agree with that. No, anything anything above 300
0: milliseconds, like if you're trying to have a Zoom call that's above 300 milliseconds, you're pissed off. Like, it's not, it's not a fun experience.
2: Right, even this, where the latency is probably actually, like, I'm assuming 700, 800 milliseconds, like it's not that high, but it's still just high enough where we keep, like, Running into each other, trying to start talking, because that cue just is just slow enough where it makes it tough, you know.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So yeah, that feels like pretty good lines to draw. I mean, we've seen we've seen different
0: groups try to like. Wowza, I think was the original mm-hmm. post that that attempted to like name these things, and and Will Law had a good update on that, and then Phil, you created a a, a version of it for your post. I think you know it's all hovering around the same seconds, you know. Yeah, four to. Zero to one, real time. One to four or five, low latency. Things above five, starting to get into more standard latency, and it's this kind of juggle that maps somewhat closely the technology
1: that's that's driving you to those different levels. And, and sometimes one of the challenges is there is this association of low latency being a parallel for like synchronous like it doesn't matter necessarily in some use cases if uh, the latency is low as long as the streams are for example well aligned and so long as you know everyone's getting experience at the same time, and so long as metadata is timed, that can be part of an experience, right? For example, you can, mm-hmm. if you were building your own HQ trivia, but you didn't want to have that interactivity with the audience as much, then so long as the questions appeared at the right times and that sort of thing, you actually don't care as much about the latency as the fact that all the questions are aligned and the viewers are all aligned as well. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point, because it takes slightly different technologies to achieve
0: synchronicity than... Low latency, like you know, the lower the latency you get, the more you get kind of get synchronicity built in. But like, yeah, they're not necessarily synonymous.
1: And I think one of the one of the things I always like to highlight when we have a lot of conversations about this uh, with you know at work with clients, as well as you know on video dev and in you know demo circles as well. But one of the challenges and the things that a lot of people who aren't Deeply versed in the uh, industry, is that there is always a sacrifice of stability with latency, uh, stability and quality. In many, in many cases, for latency, right? If you want to bring your latency down, you probably want to send smaller packets more frequently. That's going to make you kind of more susceptible to any network conditions that might be going on, whether that's someone putting a router on top of a microwave and turning a microwave on, whether that's um, someone starting to watch Netflix in the next room. There is always going to be, regardless of any of these technologies, no matter what any vendor tells you, there will always be this challenge of making sure that, you know, sacrificing a stability component for a latency component. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's an important note that I think gets lost in a lot of this, is
2: that trade-off. Like, we can continue to even as like we reliably start decreasing latency all throughout the chain from end to end from broadcaster out to delivery every issue that you can have along the way which are legion it's the internet all the way through every issue you can have along the way gets magnified when your uh, margin for error is is down to milliseconds instead of potentially seconds mm-hmm. All of those things that could potentially save you and help along the way, uh, those those all just go away, and now you're you're just kind of generally screwed if if the encoder disconnects or even the viewer's connection gets bad and like their buffer completely uh, is exhausted within 500 milliseconds. Like all those cause problems. Yep. Yeah. At the player level, that's essentially what it is, right? Like you we're talking about
0: decreasing the buffer in order to get lower and lower, like closer and closer to real time, but by decreasing that buffer you're introducing the risk of rebuffers and having to like pause to download more video and rebuffers are like probably the most annoying thing when you're watching a video so absolutely that's a good point yeah
2: okay so we we have this kind of the bands for what different kinds of latency are but we have had low latency video in the past so like let's let's go through real quick mm-hmm. like pre apple this latency was possible. We talked about with HQ Trivia, and you know, it's it's been done. So talking about those technologies real quick. Mm-hmm. The first one that obviously comes to mind is, is RTMP. I remember that was like when I first started helping with Video.js, that was one of the most common issues and questions that I think we saw was people wanted RTMP support in the uh, flash fallback. <laughs> oh my
1: gosh. That was rough. You know, there are still people asking for that, right? You know, it's 2020. You know, there are still people actively adding flash to things just to reduce latency. Yeah, with, with RTMP, I think you could get to, like, on, on
0: average, I think it was actually around like five seconds latency, honestly. But if you tuned it, you could get it down to about two seconds. I don't remember a lot of like you know Google hangout style applications. I guess I no 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 yeah you did have some, but they weren't they weren't the greatest latency when it came down to it. Like not quite as good as as like WebRTC today,
2: but like you could get it down there. Well, but the huge difference there, if I recall correctly, wasn't even necessarily that the latency was hyper low, but that the playback was all synced.
0: Mm, mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, that makes sense because you have you have like a Flash media server in the center that was like transcoding the stream, and then basically the same type concept of like a persistent connection out to each one of the users. And you know at the time, CDNs were you know stocking up on Flash media servers, basically like scaling those out in the same way that they were scaling just your normal HTTP traffic servers. And you know super expensive, but yeah, that's how they were making this kind of. Large live streaming, and even even like on-demand streaming, a lot of uh, even YouTube, I think, was using RTMP to stream on-demand video just because you could get a little bit more consistent, sometimes a more adaptive experience using that protocol.
2: Well, Steve Jobs went on stage and, and killed flash was was the big one. So mm-hmm. yeah, once Flash died, RTMP died on the vine in terms of like playback, because if you can't play back in the browser, you know go home, honestly. <laughs> I mean, our <laughs> RTMP is still uh TV is still like incredibly prevalent because it's the most common way that anybody broadcasts video. We've talked a lot. I've talked a lot about this with like how to go live from the browser because really you can't unless you go through an intermediary service and then go to an RTMP endpoint because that's what Twitch wants, YouTube, Facebook, mm-hmm. Mux. I think Wowza has alternative ingest protocols. But the most common one is RTMP. So anyway, like if you want to broadcast live, you are almost certainly doing it with RTMP right now. Mm-hmm. The flip side of that is I think why we're seeing so many requests for WebRTC now, just because like that's a word that web developers know when it comes to video. Mm-hmm. This is where we get to this really interesting split and in understanding between these things, where like if you're a developer that's primarily focused in the web, uh, you work a lot in the browser, You know that you can build these chat applications using WebRTC, and you know that a service like Mux or YouTube Live or whatever else does video. (laughs) So you're like, Mm. it follows that like, why can't I just like use this to get to that? Mm -hmm. So I I guess I'd love to hear a little bit just about your all's thoughts on like WebRTC and the history here and how it fits into this story.
0: That is like from a technology perspective, it does get kind of like um, frustrating to hear the confusion behind it, but it makes perfect sense, right? Like, video is video to most people, but WebRTC was made to serve like a very different use case than like streaming video to many people, right? And it's meant for like a direct connection to the like between the people who are communicating, and it does things like Basically, like a- aggressively throw out quality in order to stay close to real time, and this is like if your if your connection starts falling back, like it'll start scaling back the quality of the video in order to stay close to the to the live edge. Compare that to the RTMP, which will like it might get a little bit delayed, but it'll continue to send like the high quality stream to the server. And so, that, you know, that's a little bit of a difference between the two, and you can kind of see where at least. Where they
2: start to to differ. right. It might help here to talk a little bit about like I, I wrote this demo pushing webSockets to a server that then takes those and pipes those into FFmpeg and then goes out. And so I've gotten a lot of questions from people being like, why, why not just do that? If it works, why not just have that be the protocol? And the reason I think that WebRTC could ultimately be a pretty interesting ingest protocol, uh, just in general, like, it, A, is supported from the browser. B, it has things like rate control. So that WebSocket thing, if your internet connection started crapping out and you just couldn't push the blobs of video down this WebSocket connection fast enough, you'd fall behind, your encoder would eventually choke because it wasn't getting data unless you did additional stuff behind the scenes, you would get disconnected. It, it, it just wouldn't handle the bad scenarios very well. Like The unhappy paths look really ugly with that. As opposed to things like the RTMP specs, WebRTC, like I don't know RTP as much as WebRTC, but like WebRTC is designed to keep sending video however it possibly can. So you might look like you're being recorded on a potato at times, but you will continue to send video, which oftentimes is preferable over just like the video crapping out and just stopping,
1: right? Yeah. Well, I think what the differences here is and and certainly from a a broadcast perspective, right? The, the expectations are super different, which is one of the things that comes up a lot. Like if you, for example, picking up a product that exists on the market, right? If you're using something like live View to broadcast like a a a bonded LTE signal over um, a bunch of cell networks back to like a an edit suite somewhere. Like the lower bounds on what is considered like an acceptable video signal there are like still really high in comparison to what like WebRTC considers the lower bounds. Right? WebRTC will go to a postage stamp. Whereas generally, if you're in a broadcast environment, you would say, "Well, we can't risk broadcasting a postage stamp." So you know, if you go anywhere <laughs> below a megabit or something we're actually gonna bail out on on this thing. So like I think the interesting thing there is as the internet is a bit of a, a different world there to what people traditionally have felt thought of for a, a broadcast background for the minimum bounds there. And yeah, like it makes complete sense when you're talking about Web RTC from a, you know, conversational perspective, whereas I think Web RTC from a a like an ingest protocol feels like a bit of a different beast in my mind. I feel like I rarely see WebRTC
0: being sent in higher than 540p video. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to remember where I got that from. But like, yeah, I don't see anybody stream 1080p out of WebRTC. Like, It's all about just keeping that connection. And enough quality so you know what's going on.
1: And it looks decent, but we're not talking high quality. I think one of the things I'd love to highlight there is, there are actually some solutions on the market for kind of low latency and ultra low latency that do use technologies like WebRTC and the super interesting thing there is there are some that utilize that kind of in the you know traditional video domain but there's also a variety of approaches that just use webRTC data channels to shuttle video around which is kind of super interesting for a variety of reasons because that's a that's for example a way to keep that uh, sustained connection. There, but not necessarily be you know have that rate control that's built into WebRTC's video channels, which is kind of a, a super interesting approach on its own. And there are a variety of people doing that sort of thing as well. Mm-hmm.
2: Do we want to dig into low latency Dash for just a second?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Since that's that's probably the thing that's most analogous to the low latency HLS spec that kind of kicked off this conversation.
1: Yeah, sure. So, I mean, this is one of those super interesting cases where, you know, we're we're kind of now all talking about this really in my mind because, you know, would we be doing the podcast if, you know, Apple hadn't really thrown some uh, fuel on the fire here? But, um, you know, low latency MPEG dash has been around for, you know, a few years now and is relatively well understood and works relatively well. And this is, one of the fundamental components to how people think about low latency streaming on the internet today, and it's it's also what presents the challenges, and also what you know ultimately Apple set out to address in their specification, right? Which is that the low latency dash spec uses something called chunk transfer mode, right? So this is a mode of HTTP. So it allows you to make a HTTP request, but send a response that doesn't have a content length header. So you can start sending your response before you know what you're sending, and so you can send, you know, a chunk of a, you know, a transport stream segment or a CMATH uh, chunkers as, as it would be in, in modern day parlance. So you have these, uh, these HTTP requests that get made, and then it's kind of going to take, say you've got a two-second segment of video, it's going to take two seconds for that to be downloaded because you're kind of streaming these chunks out the encoder and packaging layers as they come. And this is kind of not a, you know, chunk transfer mode has been around for a, a very long time. And in, in fact, it, it predates HTTP 1.1, in fact. And this is how the low latency dash spec is designed to work. And it works actually really well. And it works really well on actually even relatively lossy networks and high latency networks. It, it works well. The place where this technology has been fundamentally challenged over the last you know year, year and a half, has been the fact that this is a technology that is really hard to get to work right with changeable networks. If you have a network that's got like a one second latency and an HTTP request latency in it, this technology will actually work fine with that. If you're on a network where you've got some packet loss, this technology will generally work fine with that as well, because, you know, as so long as it's a consistent amount. The challenge becomes when you're talking about a network that is fluctuating, where the bandwidth or the packet loss or the latency on that network is fluctuating, because if you think about traditionally how uh, we measure bandwidth in a http environment right you you do a request you look at how long that request took to happen, and then you say, "Cool, you know, speed equals distance over time." Right, and you can look at how big that file was, how long it took to transfer, and then you've got a good estimate of the network capability of that device. And you can do that on every segment in a more traditional HTTP world, right? Say you've got a or Dash world, right? If you've got a two-second segment, you get to do a bandwidth measurement every two seconds, which allows you to react quickly. But in a world where you're downloading these parts every you know, um, two seconds, but they're taking two seconds to download, you don't really have an opportunity to do bandwidth measurement there. And this is where this technology has become fundamentally challenged over the last 18 months.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so adaptive streaming has proven to be difficult right, because of measuring
1: the actual segments that are coming down. That's interesting. And these aren't, these aren't new technologies, right? So... If you look at how dash ll dash works, um, it's really these concepts were all coming out around the same time. So I'm not going to say directly who. Like, I think really there were three people in the industry. All effectively doing the same thing at the same time, and you know it was the the low latency dash group, which is you know Stockhammer, Will Law, those sorts of people. There was also Periscope at the time. You know this is a pre-Twitter acquisition. They also took the exact same approach in their low latency streaming product. It was. HTTP chunk transfer mode, but also Twitch, right? Twitch, even still to this day, right? Still continue to use a version of, you know, chunked transfer, transferred HLS. It's not Dash, but it is, you know, built around this fundamental approach of using uh, chunk transfer on HTTP based streaming technologies.
0: Now, there have been attempts to improve the adaptivity of that, right? Like to actually build an algorithm that can measure the chunk transfer encoding
1: yeah absolutely I mean there's been a variety of ways that people have tried doing this the most primitive way which which some people still use is to you know every 10 segments go off and get a go off and get a segment at a line speed and use that as your measurement now like I say that that is what gives you challenges in rapidly changing network environments and in fact you can still see this happening on you know products like, Twitch even Twitch still falls back to a higher latency experience if your connection is fluctuant. There's been other approaches. For example, uh, one of the common approaches is based on buffer fill rate. So, is your your buffer filling or is your buffer draining? And that can give you a good indication of whether you're getting frames and stuff in quickly enough. And there's there was a really good white paper as well on this. Came out of ACTE. Uh, last year, uh, which just a really good novel approach to this as well. And in fact, there's, uh, I believe it's, I believe it's still on. I'd have to check, but I believe Twitch are actually offering a pretty big reward in this year's ACT to someone who can uh, produce a bandwidth estimation strategy for low latency that outperforms current approaches. Yeah. Before we get into Apple's official low latency
2: HLS aspect, that you know I think is kind of the catalyst for a lot of this, there actually was a really good community spec that was released mm-hmm. you know it had it had a lot of folks interested in it quite a few companies were actually starting to develop against it it was developed by uh, John Bartos who is the maintainer of hlsjs so he announced it at Demux 2018 18 yeah i want to say 18 and it really did it it had legs people were people were talking about it developing against it we had started working against it because it didn't seem like the kind of thing that apple like uh, Correct me if I'm wrong. At least in my opinion, it didn't feel like this was going to be the type of thing that Apple was going to explicitly do. So I was kind of shocked when when Apple did. And we wrote the the whole blog post where honestly we were a little bit annoyed that Apple kind of quietly behind the scenes went and did this thing and didn't really involve the community. Mm. And we had this kind of community driven thing. Well yeah, it was
0: it was that plus just the fact that it was it was so different from everything that the community was doing.
1: Right. And and this is the thing, right? The Community approach was going to be fundamentally interchangeable with LL Dash. You know, Will Law was working closely with John on that, which I think made a a big impact on how people viewed that in the industry. Yeah. Anyway, shout out to Bartos there. That was a uh, he put in a ton of work, and it was
2: really impressive. And we were really excited about it. And the demos he showed, like he showed a demo at Reframe in New York. Reframe. Shout out to Reframe. Yeah, shout out Reframe. Uh He did a demo there that was really impressive. And like the Way that it you know you could have like pinned latency. I don't know. I I was I was really excited about it. So it was it was a shame to kind of feel low latency HLS jump from being something that could have been available in I don't know end of 2019 for a lot of people to just like completely stopping all momentum there and suddenly like. Low latency HLS was relegated to being kind of when we would start seeing more. Like, nobody was going to keep working on something when Apple was going to release an official thing in the next year, two years. Mm -hmm. So, like, everything just went on pause and it went from being something that was really tangible and like right there to being,
1: you know, a year plus out, which we're still waiting. We're still waiting. Mm -hmm. I think what's really important to highlight there, though, Matt, is while it was there and within touching distance, right, it, it didn't give an answer for iOS. Yes, right. Which is always going to be kind of one of the biggest challenges here is like, yeah, we can we can say, hey, this is here and it works with like the Bartos spec and the LL dash spec, right? But if it doesn't work on an iPhone, does any of that matter, right? Or, or kind of more specifically, if I have to ship, you know, a completely custom app with a bunch of proprietary stuff in it, is that going to a make it for Apple's? You know, approval process, and you know, even if it does, is that how you want to go about building and maintaining your your app on iOS? And I think the reason that the part of the reason, at least, that that Apple get to kind of win on this by bringing in their own spec is the fact that they can say, "Oh yeah, and by the way, it'll actually work on an iPhone at some point." down the road. <laughs> of course nobody still knows when that's gonna be, even for you know what we're you know, what we're doing now. We still don't know when when Apple are gonna release official support for what they're proposing now, but one has to imagine it'll be at some point, right? Well and then the other, other side of it is we don't know how well it's gonna work in the browser. Whereas like the
0: community spec, you know, was built for the browser. The Apple spec really is pretty untested in the browser and relies on things like HTTP push, which is pretty raw in, from browser support standpoint, especially for transferring video files, not just CSS files. So that's kind of open-ended.
1: Yeah, but hey, the good news is it's no longer HTTP2 push. Mm-hmm. It's not much better, but it's, uh, it is marginally better. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
1: Which is a nice segue into
0: Apple's new... Low latency HLS approach, right? Because they essentially
1: bypassed that whole issue with the way that they approached it. Is that right? Yeah. Now I think this is this is an interesting one because there's a little bit of background here that we should we should touch on, right? About a year ago, it was WWDC last year when Apple formally announced, hey, we're we're putting a low latency mode into HLS. Roger Pantos, you know, gets gets his session at WWDC and gets to talk about stuff. And this year is how we're gonna do low latency. And I think what's interesting here is the the business cases for what they were pitching were pretty much aligned across all of the approaches right they were they were pitching something that gave around 5 seconds of latency was uh, their number you know utilized you know traditional http technologies wasn't you know changing the world per se it changed the world in a different way but that was their initial pitch is, you know, it's still trying to solve the same business case that LL- dash and uh, the community low latency HLS, which we haven't really talked about, spec, were were designed to solve as well. It's still that sort of territory of latency tuning. Now, of course, what's interesting there is uh, that kind of kickoff process from WWDC when that was announced, it really kicked off a lot of conversation in the video developer space around the new specifications. So, The new specification introduced a variety of new features into HLS that we'll go into in a bit more detail on the the next episode. But the big change really there for Apple was they wanted to move a low latency into a world of a HTTP2 push um, delivery technology, rather than kind of a more traditional HTTP GETs that you see being executed for uh, traditional HLS and traditional DASH, and they very specifically avoided. You know, going down the route of the the trunk transfer mode that was common to both LL dash and the the community approach for low latency HLS as well. Now, a lot's changed over the last twelve months. You know, we're coming up to twelve months uh, from the last WWDC now, and that specs changed a lot and has evolved and now looks quite different to what it did. And you know huge thanks to the guys at Apple but also everyone else in the the ecosystem um, a lot of the video industry spent two full days giving feedback to Apple working with Apple to resolve issues on the low latency HTTP live streaming specification. And, you know, we we believe a lot of those are now resolved in the latest version of specification. And one of the critical things to, to the people in the room there, and, you know, to give some idea, this was. 35, 40 people from around the video streaming industry. And what was common with all those people is really what everyone wanted was an interchangeable specification here. They wanted to make sure that they could reuse, in particular, the media chunks that were coming out of their encoder and making sure they could be fed in a universal way, ideally through one CDN configuration. That worked for you know the vast majority of devices, right? If you imagine uh, LL dash working well for you know Exoplayer on an Android device and potentially a web client, everyone's desire was to use those same encoded segments, ideally served in the same way over a HLS-based technology. But we'll get into that more next episode, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hopefully,
2: if you weren't familiar with kind of the landscape of what was going on with low-latency HLS and the Apple ecosystem and what all this means. Hopefully that's a little bit of an overview. The plan for this next episode is we, and when I say we, I mean mostly Phil, will uh, dig into the new HLS spec and really explain to us what that means, what the changes are that were recently released because Pantos actually did, they announced all of this, but last week or two weeks ago was the first time we saw like an official release of the HLS spec. Yep. So we'll, we'll learn what's in there, what we've actually seen, what the changes are. And I think that's where we'll take the next episode. That's all we have for today. But as always, we'd love to hear what you thought, even if you disagree. So please reach out on Twitter at DMUXT.
1: To learn more about HeavyBit, visit HeavyBit.com. And while you're there, be sure to check out their library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders.